1907, 20 boys came together for a camp on Brownsea Island in Poole Harbour, Dorset. It was the brainchild of Boer War veteran Robert Baden-Powell. Little could he, or indeed they, know that the camp would give birth to the scouting movement, which now has over 40 million members worldwide. Whilst any former scout or guide will probably know that Robert Baden-Powell was the founder of this incredible movement, many won't know that the idea for this youth organisation came out of the Boer War in South Africa, and more directly from Baden-Powell's own experiences during the Siege of Mafeking. If a tiny island off the coast of Dorset seems an unlikely launching pad for the worldwide scouting movement, then a dusty railway town on the edge of the Kalahari Desert is equally unlikely. And yet, without the Siege of Mafeking, there probably wouldn't be a scouting movement. Without the young boys in the town forming a cadet force to run errands during that long siege, Baden-Powell might not have ever had the idea. And if Baden-Powell hadn't become a national hero because he'd held out against the Boers for 217 days, maybe his camp on Brownsea Island would never have received the publicity that helped launch the movement. History has a strange way of connecting events together. This is the story of Robert Baden-Powell and the Siege of Mafeking during the Boer War. Robert Stevenson Smythe Baden-Powell was born in 1857. Educated at one of England's leading public schools, Charterhouse, he joined the British Army in 1876. Commissioned with the 13th Hussars, within a few years he was serving in Natal Colony, South Africa. It would be the beginning of an association with the continent that would keep drawing him back right to his dying days, nearly 60 years later. After postings to Malta and India, Baden-Powell, or BP as he liked to refer to himself, returned back to Africa in 1896. In the aftermath of the failed Jameson raid into the Boer Republic of the Transvaal, which I've talked about in a previous story, the Africans in what is now Zimbabwe had risen in revolt against Cecil Rhodes's British South Africa Company. Fighting in the Second Matabele War, Baden-Powell became recognised as a gifted scout. Actually, he owed this growing knowledge and skills to his new friend, American Frederick Russell Burnham. Burnham is a fascinating character whom time doesn't allow me to talk too much about in this particular story. Suffice to say that in a varied and colourful career, he had learnt extensive woodcraft skills from some of the pioneers and native peoples of the Old West, which he in turn taught to Baden-Powell. It was here in Matabeleland that BP started wearing Burnham's Montana-style peaked Stetson, which we adapted for use by the Boy Scouts but that's for later. The latter years of the 1890s, ever since that disastrous Jameson raid, were marked by rising tensions between the British and the two Boer republics of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. I've made a video summarising the Boer War and the build-up to it, and I'll post a link in the description. In preparation for a potential war, a small team of Imperial officers were sent to South Africa. One of those was Colonel Robert Baden-Powell. BP was given orders to establish a mounted force of troops drawn from Rhodesia and the Bechuanaland Republic, modern-day Botswana, who could raid into Transvaal in the event of a war. Plans, however, were then changed, and Baden-Powell was ordered to take half the force to the town of Mafeking. Mafeking, 250 miles north of Kimberley in the British Cape Colony, lay on the edge of the Kalahari Desert. It held no value, save for the fact that it protected the railway north from the Cape to Rhodesia. It did, however pose a threat to the Transvaal. Lying only about 180 miles west of the Johannesburg goldfields, the Boers would have to reserve some of their forces 
just in case BP did make a dash for the centre of the Transvaal. Indeed, just a few years beforehand, the Jameson raid had nearly achieved that very goal, and they'd set out from near Mafeking. So to the Boers, Mafeking presented both a danger and was also high in symbolism. A second raid from that area could be attempted again, and like the first one, it could not be allowed to succeed. The British were offering Baden-Powell and his garrison as bait, and it was a bait the Boers couldn't resist. In October 1899, the Boers declared war on the British. Boer forces poured over the borders into the British colonies of Natal and the Cape. However, a force of about 7,000 was also sent to deal with Baden-Powell in Mafeking. That diversion amounted to nearly a fifth of the Boer army, and by sending such a large force towards Mafeking, they crucially deprived their invading forces of valuable numbers. Counterfactual or what-if history is fun and full of flaws, but it's interesting to wonder if adding all those troops to the invasion of Natal could have allowed the Boers to take the port of Durban before British reinforcements arrived, and that would have changed things. The reality, however, was that didn't happen, because 7,000 of them under veteran General Pete Cronier were arriving outside Mafeking instead. They were armed with the latest European rifles and also possessed nine field guns and an enormous 94-pounder long tom gun, which the British in the town would nickname Old Creechy. Against that, Baden-Powell could muster a force of 680 irregular mounted troops and police who were now all acting as infantry, 20 regular British officers, and about 300 men of the town guard, which was almost every able-bodied white man in Mafeking who could carry a rifle. To counter the Boer artillery, all he could offer were two old seven-pound muzzle-loading guns, which had been sent to him by mistake, rather than the latest breech-loading variety. It wasn't much of an army. The fact that Baden-Powell held out at all owes a lot to do with his ability to organise, inspire, and quite frankly bluff his way through. In fairness, it also seems something to do with the lacklustre Boer commanders, who seemed intent on starving the British out, rather than launching any serious offensive actions. Whilst the Boers' old Creechy would sometimes lob 70 shells a day into the town, Baden-Powell's genius for organisation meant that that big gun made scant impact on the garrison. A series of bomb shelters had been dug to escape the shells, and BP also organised a web of telephone lines across the town, meaning that he was aware of what was going on anywhere, at any time, and thus could direct operations, as we're going to find out later. A good example early on was encountering Old Creechy. Observers would watch the Boer gun, and using the telephones would report the direction that it was aiming in. Then, using the same telephone network, BP would be able to send an alarm to the appropriate part of the town. And speaking of guns, the ingenuity of the garrison came into play here too. For a start, they constructed their own rival to Old Creechy. Their gun, which they nicknamed the Wolf, had started life as a four-inch steel pipe. Engineers in the railway foundry in the town built a breech and attached it to the barrel. It was then mounted on what had been a threshing machine so it could be moved around. When completed, it could send an 18-pound shell 4,000 yards across the arid veldt towards the besieging army. The defenders were also able to add a further gun to their artillery, and this one rivals the ingenuity behind the wolf. It was noticed 
that an old ship's cannon was now an ornamental gatepost in the town. Incredibly, the old cannon dating from 1770 was recommissioned and was used on a regular basis to fire cannonballs on the Boers. Baden-Powell was delighted to spot the initials BP on the ancient cannon, although in this case BP didn't stand for Baden-Powell, but Bailey Peg & Co, who had iron foundries in London and at Briley Hill in the Black Country. But the greatest contribution to the British holding out for over 200 days was the large quantity of food that they'd stockpiled in the town. And as much as Baden-Powell would like to take credit for this masterstroke, his chief of staff was probably more influential in this success. Lord Edward Cecil was 32 years of age and the fourth son of the then Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury. Commissioned in the Grenadier Guards in 1887, he was present at the Battle of Omdurman and had accompanied Lord Kitchener when he confronted the French during the Freshoda incident in southern Sudan. Appointed Chief of Staff to Baden-Powell, it was Lord Edward Cecil who secured the stores needed for the siege. With the war office shilly-shallying about and not making a decision as the war clouds gathered, Cecil presented to a local supplier a personal IOU for £500,000 worth of supplies. Admittedly, he expected that IOU to be honoured by the British Parliament, and let's face it, his dad was the Prime Minister. Nevertheless, by October 1899, Mafeking had more than enough food supplies to withstand the coming siege. It was during the siege that Cecil heard that his mother had died. He fell into a deep depression and never showed the boyish enthusiasm for the siege that BP was exhibiting to the garrison. Cecil never really got over his time in Mafeking, and after the war, he'd refused to talk about it. Which is a shame, because he made another contribution which was to have a lasting impact way beyond the Boer War. It was Lord Edward Cecil who established the Mafeking Cadet Corps for boys below fighting age who wanted to play their part in the defence. These boys were used to help in the hospital, to carry messages and to act as lookouts. Riding bicycles, they'd often go to observation points where there were no telephones and then speed back to report what they'd seen. Dressed in khaki uniforms, their leading cadet, Sergeant Major Warner Goodyear, was even depicted on a postage stamp that was issued in the town during the siege. 24 cadets would later be awarded the Defence of Mafeking Bar to go on their Queen's South Africa medals for their role in the siege. Their enthusiasm and abilities made a lasting impression on the commander of the garrison, and Baden-Powell would draw on that in the years after the war. If Lord Edward Cecil didn't enjoy the 217-day siege, the same can't be said for Colonel Robert Baden-Powell. He seemed to relish the situation and almost saw it as a giant game. Indeed, when the Boers offered to play the garrison in a cricket match, I kid you not, he replied that he'd love to, but only after the current game in which they were 200 days not out. It was this optimistic, stiff upper lip approach to his communications to the outside world that grabbed the attention of the British public. The opening months of the war had been nothing short of a disaster for the British. Not only was Mafeking besieged, but so too was Kimberley, the centre of the world's diamond mining industry. Worse still was that a large British garrison had also been besieged in the Natal town of Ladysmith. Despite a whole army division under General Redford's Buller arriving in South Africa, the British were defeated three times in a week by the Boers. The stunned British press called it Black Week. The British public were crestfallen. What was going on? How could a citizen's army of farmers be defeating the British army? And from Kimberley, 
The arch-imperialist Cecil Rhodes was sending dire warnings that the town might even have to surrender now. Amidst all this gloom, there was one tiny glimmer of hope. Up in the middle of nowhere, on the edge of the Kalahari Desert, the little town of Mafeking was still holding out. Not only was the garrison holding out, but their commander sent a stream of upbeat messages to them, in stark contrast to the messages coming out of the other two towns. Whilst Rhodes was announcing that Kimberley would fall at any moment, the message the British authorities received from Mafeking was completely different. All well, four hours bombardment, one dog killed, Baden Powell. This was the sort of optimistic, stiff upper lip, stoical British behaviour the press were longing for. Suddenly, the slightly built and balding Colonel Robert Baden Powell became a national hero. The public eagerly awaited his reports in the newspapers. And BP loved every minute of this fame. Indeed, he seemed to be loving every minute of the siege too. From taking the leading role in camp concerts aimed at raising morale, through to appearing on postage stamps used for the mail service in the town, Baden-Powell seemed to relish the whole experience like, well, like a Boy Scout. The almost carnival gaiety of the siege was enhanced by the presence of a celebrity guest in the town. Lady Sarah Wilson had been employed by the Daily Mail to cover the war. Captured by the Boers, she was part of a prisoner exchange arranged with Baden-Powell, and now the noble lady was ensconced in the besieged town. Her bomb shelter became the centre of Mafeking's social scene, whilst Lady Sarah continued to write articles for the Daily Mail. Interestingly, her nephew was also covering the war as a journalist, Winston Churchill. Whilst the Boers seemed to be content to sit around in their lager waiting for the British to starve and surrender, Baden-Powell was happy to take the fight to them. Not only were his homemade guns firing back at the Boers, but his men even improvised grenades. These consisted of placing dynamite inside empty potted meat tins and then lobbing them at the enemy lines. Nighttime raids were conducted on the Boer trenches. In one of these raids, an Irishman, Captain Charles Fitzclarence, personally killed four Boer fighters with his sword. For this and for further actions, he was to receive one of three Victoria Crosses awarded at the defence of Mafeking. The other two are coming up in a moment. As the Boers hadn't bothered to destroy the railway track, BP even loaded up a train with some of his troops and steamed close to the Boer encampment, blazing away. Apart from simply trying to be proactive, BP's strategy in the early days of the siege was to fool the Boers into thinking that the defences and the numbers in Mafeking were greater than they were. Afterwards, he happily recalled that it was like a giant game of bluff. His deceptions included pretending to lay minefields around the town and getting his men to step over invisible barbed wire. Christmas 1899 was celebrated in style, or at least amongst the white garrison anyway. The commander attended a dinner complete with turkey, plum puddings, wine and brandy. By now, General Cronier had moved south in an attempt to block the British advance on Kimberley. The greatly reduced Boer force at Mafeking was placed under the command of General Jacobus Snyman. Looking like an Old Testament prophet, the 61-year-old was devoutly religious and refused to fire on the British garrison on a Sunday. So, despite it actually falling on the Monday, Christmas Day in Mafeking was celebrated on the Sunday. The following day brought an end to the festivities. Baden-Powell organised an attack on a Boer position about 3,000 yards from the town. Unbeknownst to the British, Snyman had rebuilt the position into a veritable blockhouse. 
The confident British attacked the position head-on and were mowed down by accurate Boer rifle fire. 24 of the garrison were killed. During this action, Sergeant Horace Martineau was shot five times whilst attacking the position and trying to pull wounded comrades to safety. His injuries were so severe that his arm had to be amputated. For his actions that day, he too was awarded the Victoria Cross, as was another man in that battle, Horace Ramsden. Black Boxing Day, as it became known, signalled a change of mood in the garrison. Some members of the garrison grumbled that baden Powell's upbeat messages and bullish statements that they could hold out were a deliberate attempt by him to prolong the siege and also prolong his moment in the spotlight. Soon the Christmas festivities seemed a distant memory as the food supplies finally started to run out. Somehow BP was to eke out the supplies for another five months. Apart from some ingenious meal plans and rationing, he achieved this by more controversial means too. He limited the food supplies to the black Africans in the town. In all the excitement about Baden-Powell and the siege and subsequent relief of Mafeking, the role of the black population in the town is often forgotten. Both the British and the Boers preferred to treat this as a white man's war. And yet, the blacks played a part too and suffered far greater casualties than many people realise. The black township in Mafeking, called the Stadt, stood to the west of the European town. Nevertheless, it was within the defensive perimeter, and so its population were besieged too. The normal population of 5,000 from the Baralonged people had swollen to 8,000 thanks to nearby Fingos fleeing the Boers who had burnt the villages, and from black workers fleeing the gold mines in the Transvaal. BP employed many of these men, especially the miners, to dig the four miles of trenches that defended the town along with the bomb shelters that were mentioned earlier. But then he did something far more unorthodox, which shocked the Boers. He armed 300 of them with modern rifles and gave them responsibility for defending the western perimeter, where the Stad faced the Kalahari scrubland. The Boers were shocked that he had armed blacks, but BP didn't care. He just increased his garrison by a third. These armed Baralong fighters were named somewhat tongue-in-cheek after the Highland Regiment, the Black Watch. With food supplies running particularly low in the Stadt, even the whites could spot that many Africans were starving. Many of the black population, with BP's encouragement, tried to break through the Boer lines to either fend for themselves in the countryside or make their way to British towns further to the north. Many were shot by the Boers, others were captured and flogged by them. How many died is hard to tell, but official figures later claimed 300 plus, although it could have been more. As the dry, monotonous months passed, things started to go the way of the British Army. Under a new commander, Lord Roberts, the army defeated old General Cronier at Paderberg and relieved Kimberley. Likewise, over in Natal, Ladysmith was finally relieved. By mid-March, Roberts had captured Bloemfontein, the capital of the Orange Free State. But still, the siege of Mafeking dragged on. It would last twice the duration of either Lady Smith or Kimberley. Eventually, a flying column consisting of Imperial Mounted Infantry, principally drawn from South Africa, was sent to relieve the little town. And now, after all these months, the Boers finally decided to launch a serious assault on the town before it was too late. In fairness, General Snyman would probably have demurred, but unfortunately for him, President Kruger's hot-headed grandson, Field Cornet Sarol Elof had arrived on the scene. The 28-year-old devised an audacious plan. 
While Snyman launched a feint on the eastern perimeter, Elof would storm the western side of the town at the Stadt. Moving through the Black Township, he would enter the white part of the town and it would be game over before the British even knew what was happening. He enthusiastically announced that the next morning he would be having breakfast in the hotel in Mafeking. In the early hours of the morning on the 12th of May 1900, with Snyman providing his attack in the east, Elof struck. Tearing through the Stadt, almost unopposed, his men set fire to the African huts as a signal to Snyman they were inside and he should launch a full-scale attack to the east. Unfortunately for Elof, it also signalled to Baden-Powell as to what was actually going on in the darkness. Nevertheless, by far past five his men had captured the police station, taking the 29 occupants prisoner. The gung-ho Elof now used the police station telephone to call Baden-Powell's HQ and personally inform the British commander that he'd captured the police station and would be joining him soon. Which was pretty confident. Of course, he was also just confirming to the British commander exactly where his opposite number was. And it wasn't the only telephone line in Mafeking. By now, BP's web of telephones was telling him that Steinman was not launching a full-scale attack in the east. Baden-Powell was able to confidently draw men from that perimeter to cross town to face Elof's incursion. Baden-Powell now used his telephone system to coordinate his counter-attack. Pinned down by British forces in front of them, the Boers now found their escape route had been blocked too. When Elof had charged through the Stadt, the Black Watch had melted away. However, once the Boers had sped past, the 300 armed blacks had reformed and cut off their line of retreat. Outnumbered, outgunned and with no line of retreat, Elof surrendered his remaining 108 men. He'd lost 60 men killed and wounded. It could have been more if Imperial officers hadn't stepped in to prevent the Black Watch settling old scores with the Boers. The British defenders had lost just 12 dead and 8 wounded. Many of those had been from the African troops. Elof did indeed dine in the hotel, but as Baden-Powell's prisoner. Five days later, on the 17th of May 1900, the British relief force finally arrived in the town to lift the siege. It had lasted 217 days. The arrival of the rescuers was met with complete indifference. Oh yes, I heard you were knocking around, was the welcome from one townsman, who then hurried off for the final of the town's billiard tournament. If the town itself was downbeat about the relief, it was anything but that back in Britain. News that the siege had finally ended was picked up by the Reuters news agency office in London at 9.17pm on the 18th of May. 18 minutes later, the Lord Mayor of London stood on the balcony of the Mansion House to announce the news. A verbal Mexican wave spread across London. Within minutes, an estimated 20,000 people were surrounding the building, singing the national anthem. Theatres stopped performances to announce the news. Trains leaving London whistled almost their entire journeys as excited passengers and drivers shouted the news at each station. It's hard to believe quite how ecstatic the country was. The scenes were akin to the pictures that we see of celebrations at the end of the Second World War. Bonfires were lit, rockets let off, people singing and dancing, all because of the little town on the edge of the Kalahari Desert. And the celebrations weren't limited to Britain either. In Melbourne, Australia, guns were fired and church bells rang. In Canada, there was a similar outpouring of celebration. It was a release of pent-up emotions. It even produced a new verb in the English language, to mafic, which became a term for celebrating wildly. A popular musical song summed up the celebrations and the new verb. Mother, may I go and mafic? 
run around and hinder traffic. And Mavic the British did for five whole days. And nothing summed up that British spirit on display at Mafeking more than the garrison commander, Colonel Robert Baden-Powell. He was promoted to the rank of Major General, the youngest at the time in the British Army. And whilst not excelling in any further battles during the Boer War, his star continued to rise. Whilst Baden-Powell's star rose and rose due to Mafeking, some of the other survivors were not so lucky. Lord Edward Cecil came back from Mafeking a morose character, following the death of his mother and a loveless marriage. His only son was another one of that generation of young officers killed in the opening months of the First World War. Lord Edward himself died in December 1918, a month after the end of World War I. Captain Fitzclarence VC was killed in action on the Western Front in November 1914. Sergeant Horace Martineau VC was to move to New Zealand and in the First World War joined the ANSAC forces at Gallipoli. He was to die of medical complications back in New Zealand in 1916. On the Boer side, young Sarol Eloff was to spend the rest of the Boer War in a POW camp on the Atlantic island of St Helena. After the war, he returned to South Africa and spent the rest of his life on his farm. Despite being in his 60s, General Snyman fought on in the guerrilla campaign with Christian de Vett. He survived the war and died in 1925, aged 87. But these characters were merely bit players as far as the British press and public were concerned. The hero was Major General Robert Baden-Powell. In 1907, inspired by the Mafeking Cadet Corps, he decided to hold a camp for boys on Brownsea Island off the coast of Dorset to teach them teamwork, responsibility and woodcraft skills. With his celebrity status, the press raised the public's interest and across Britain, Groups of lads wrote to him, asking if they could do something similar. The Boy Scout movement was formed. The rest of his life was spent building and leading it. His last days were back in Africa, the continent that he loved and which made him a legend. He died in 1941 and is buried close to the base of Mount Kenya. Whilst the Siege of Mafeking has been largely forgotten, the name of Robert Baden-Powell lives on. The scouting movement that he founded continues to impact and inspire over 40 million young people in over 130 countries around the world. Well, thanks for joining me today and I hope you enjoyed that story about Robert Baden-Powell and the Siege of Mafeking during the Boer War. What would you like to hear about in the future? Please drop me a line. And if you like my work, then please join my supporters club. Find out more by clicking the link in the description. Loads more stories coming your way. But in the meantime, thanks for your support. Keep well. And I'll see you very soon.